From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now in our 17th year on the air and still the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. Let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. Our topic, rural and urban issues. My guests are UALR Professor Terry Richard. It used to be when I was growing up, there were jokes about the country hit. And in the rural areas, they had their own stereotype of clueless urbanites. UCA author and professor Michael Yoder. If you look at cinema and stereotypes, I think that really encapsulates it very well. And the communications director for the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, Adrian Barnes. There's not necessarily an us versus them in terms of we're being left behind and you don't care about us in the city. How do you identify, rural or urban? Lots to cover in the next hour, so stay with us. We'll be right back after the news. Hi, everyone. I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Our topic this evening is rural compared to urban life here in 2016. It'd be very easy to just say urban versus rural, but our discussion is really not about which is better, uh, rather how has each evolved over the generations and where is each headed. My guests this evening bring their expertise and experience to our discussion uh, and joining us by phone from uh, Delray Beach, Florida. And speaking from that older perspective is Dr. Terry Richard. Dr. Richard is a longtime guest going back to our first program back in 2001. And Dr. Richard has been with UALR for over 20 years and is a full professor and former chair of the Department of Sociology and Gerontology and past state director of LULAC of Arkansas. What is that anyway, Terry? A League of United Latin American Citizens. I might have guessed that because you had a lot to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Glad to have you joining us here, uh, Dr. Bouchard. Yeah, great to be here, Phil. Speaking from the middle perspective is Dr. Michael Yoder. He's an associate professor in the Department of Geography and director of the Masters of Science in Community Development at UCA. And he's the author of, among many types of uh, articles, he's the author of The Sprawling Small Cities of Arkansas, The Case for Sustained Urban Planning, as well as many other articles addressing urban and economic development in our state. And he also serves on on Conway's Bicycle and Pedestrian Advisory Board. He joins us here in the studio. Dr. Yoder, glad to have you here. Thank you so much. It's good good to be here. And our younger generation guest is Adrian Barnes. Adrian is the Director of Communications for the Arkansas Department of Agriculture. And I did want to ask you, Adrian, I think I've heard you doing some uh, spots lately about fires. Is that right? That's right. The Arkansas Forestry Commission is part of the Agriculture Department. And we've had fire danger, wildfire activity, lots of wildfire discussion lately. Let me begin with you first here today, Dr. Yoder, tying in with the, the article that you wrote about the small cities and things. Give us a little bit of an oversight of, of what your take is on our topic of urban and rural. What are the pros and the cons for being in one or the other that you see? Rural areas, uh, you know, that would be small cities plus, you know, sort of countryside type areas outside of metro areas. One of the cons is the distance. And a lot of people that live in rural areas are commuting to metro areas and so they've got that long commute to make some of the pros might be things like social capital if you're looking at say a small city of 10,000 people where the business community works well together they might be able to to have some cohesion in the city and bring about some positive things but then you look at places where that doesn't exist like for example in a lot of the communities say in the in the delta that are distressed where there's been a lot of of 
flight, a lot of population decline, um, they've got some problems. Some people, I guess, like the, you know, I'm thinking my generation, a lot of people just sort of automatically think, oh boy, wouldn't it be great to live in a rural area because you don't have the rat race of the city and all that. But in many cases, some of those problems of the city are replicated in, in, in small cities and rural areas. Dr. Richard, let me jump back with you on that older perspective as far as uh, pros and, and cons for those who are, say, over 60. What would be the pros and cons for, for that group? Well, let me say that, that I know that in terms of the census, it used to be traditionally was they had like a small town or rural area with 2,500 uh, persons or less. But in, in many cases, what happens in industrialized nations is often that a distinction between what is rural and what is urban really becomes, uh, you know, really difficult to pin down because there's no doubt that like even in our own a state where somebody might live in Perryville, which was is is a pretty good distance from Little Rock, but a lot of people have moved out into that Perry County area and stuff because they like the uh, kind of hills and it's uh, little isolated areas. They can get a pond, so it's really been a more of an attractive pull factor for individuals that are of a higher SES or socioeconomic status for them to move out there. At the same time, many of the towns that have become or small cities and rural areas, one of the reasons they become distressed is they don't have uh, access to jobs. And that in many cases, the push factor that really pushes individuals out of uh, rural areas, particularly for young individuals, is that they just don't have opportunities there. So we do have a situation where often in the rural areas, they tend to have, uh, it's an older uh, age population than individuals that actually live in the urban areas. Well, let me bring Adrian Barnes into it. Adrian, your perspective from that uh, younger uh, view as far as the pros and cons and also what uh, uh, Dr. Richard and uh, Dr. Yoder have been talking about. Well, it's so funny to hear Perryville, Arkansas mentioned because that's exactly where I grew up. Uh, and we actually lived in the country of Perryville, so uh, in terms of the country outside of it. So we were rural uh, Arkansans in a rural in community <laughs> anyway. Uh, and, and some things that I think affect rural versus urban decisions for younger people, especially if we're from a rural area anyway, uh, have a lot to do with options. So in a rural area, you are going to have options for socializing. Uh, you're going to have options for raising your children that are quite different from what you're going to have in an urban area. One of the biggest things right now is do we raise our kids in areas where they've got exposure to forested uh, land to open pasture and what's the difference in raising a family in that setting versus raising them in an area where there are no open forest experiences there are no living classrooms anymore right outside our back door so I think that's a big decision for people uh, as they're deciding whether or not to be married whether or not to have children how do we raise them in a setting where any kind of imagination or creativity is still fostered and in a rural versus urban decision can have a lot to do with that uh, in terms of land ownership, I think it's interesting to look at most of the land in Arkansas is privately owned. That sets us apart mostly across the southern region from folks uh, to the west and to the east of us. Uh, and one of the biggest reasons I think that people would move to a rural area is to have your own privacy, to have your own land that you can either farm, that you can plant trees, you can do whatever you're going to do with that. Uh, but because it's privately owned, uh, usually land's going to be passed through families. So if your family doesn't already have land ownership, 
it's going to be hard to conceive of a life in a rural area. So whether you're you're brought up in either setting, uh, I think that that's a big filter for people that are are making a decision either way. Uh, so options um, in rural areas, you are going to socialize. You're going to have a circle, but there's a, a huge cultural decision that you have to make uh, as you're going through your 20s and 30s in terms of who do I want to socialize with. Uh, am I okay in a small community setting with folks that are probably not going to be the same age that I am, that are going to have uh, shared experiences, but they're in different paths of life? Whereas if you make the decision to get married and socialize in an urban area, you are going to have more shared experiences with folks your own age uh, and more likely to be in your your own uh, your shared background. Mm-hmm. So I think socialization, uh, social skills are going to are going to be heavily considered when you're making those options as well. Uh, and, if, go ahead. If I could say, if you don't mind, Phil, also in terms of really getting into this generational issue too, certainly when I was growing up, there were rural areas and farm areas, and they really were distinct in their own way. They weren't connected to the social network. Uh, there were not any TVs. Uh, in some areas, there, there wasn't access to radios. And so there really was kind of a rural lifestyle that was uh, significantly different from an urban area. And that, and indeed, you know, farming tended to be much more active. I think there was a greater degree of, of uh, activities were tended to concentrate around church activities. Their individuals generally tended to know each other. In fact, usually the individuals often tended to identify themselves by the religion that they belonged to because that's often where they were doing, uh, if there were any, any uh, activities like either dances at the Methodist Church or whatever, they tended to be church-related. They were relatively stable communities, and that this has really changed as a byproduct of, of uh, opportunities and the type of jobs that are available, where really many of the, the, uh, these rural areas begin to, to lose the ability to sustain individuals in, in say, farming, which has increasingly become more of an agribusiness. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. And um, when you're talking about the social cohesion, say, in small places, a lot of that now is is replicated in the suburbs, even though it's not that, that suburbs are uniformly cohesive. It's that people create their own networks. So, I mean, you could, for example, live in a subdivision on the west side of Conway, which I do. <laughs> and I don't know. I've lived there since the fall of 2008. I know exactly one neighbor. Uh, but I have, but I have a, a very strong social network in Conway. It's just that it, it kind of transcends the entire West Side and even the East Side in the downtown area of Conway. And so we kind of create these days. We create our own networks in that regard. I still think though about in the rural areas. And, and by the way, it's, it's interesting that, that you were uh, that you mentioned the Hispanic population. Um, Hope is a, another example of yeah. a, a place. And what, what's a interesting, <laughs> it's interesting there because that's the only city I can think of. In Arkansas, that does not have a majority majority. In other words, the because the Hispanic population is as large as it is in Hope, it's something like 40, 40, 20, you know, uh, blacks, whites, Hispanics. Another little irony, sorry if I'm going off on a little tangent here, but um, I think technically Perryville and Perry County technically is considered part of the Little Rock Metro because of commute patterns. And again, that's a that's a census bureau kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it goes back to the original point that sometimes it's a little bit messy trying to, you know, to define, you know, exactly what is rural. Well, staying with that, uh, Dr. Yoder, since your article uh, that you wrote had it so much to do with the small cities and, and all that, 
Define for me here, as we're just kind of getting into the discussion here, how rural is Arkansas and how urban is Arkansas? It kind of depends on how you how you define it. Do you define it in terms of density and, and land use or, you, or kind of the landscape style, or do you define it in terms of the way the Census Bureau does? But definitely Arkansas is one of the more rural states, no matter how you define it. And that would, in, if you include those small cities like, you know, Stuttgart and Moralton that were part of this, the, uh, the case study I did for that particular uh, article, but I've also looked at, at Hope and, and, and Batesville and Blyville and a number of other places that would technically be considered um, uh, rural. But yes, we're definitely a micropolitan state. Um, if you're looking at cities between 10,000 and 50,000 that the Census Bureau regards as, as rural, uh, that would be about 20% of Arkansas's population, which is double the national average. Mm-hmm. And then if you count on top of that, you know, purely rural areas where, where it's, you know, little places uh, less than 2,500 or whatever as, as centers, then, then it's probably another 20%, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. We're talking about urban compared to rural here today on Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow with my guest, Dr. Terry Richard, professor here at UALR in the Department of Sociology, Dr. Michael Yoder, that last voice you just heard from a professor in the Department of Geography and director of the Master of Science in Community Development at UCA, and Adrian Barnes, director of communications for the Arkansas Department of Agriculture. We'll be right back after this short break. This is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and I'm Phil Marriage. If you're just joining us, we're comparing rural and urban life with my guests, Dr. Terry Richard, Dr. Michael Yoder, and Adrian Barnes. And I'd like to go with you, Adrian, about the effects of technology as it affects urban and rural. In terms of if a rural area has access to the fast Internet, if they have access to a mobile hotspot uh, or some way that they connect into the city, you're going to find uh, most rural areas have commuters and they have a strong connection with a metropolitan area, and probably most of the area works out of an urban area. For rural communities, though, where the Internet is not as quick or there's not as many uh, accessible spots for computers or connection, uh, I think that's where you'll find your rural areas that are, are struggling more. Uh, unfortunately, we do live in a time when uh, communication and accessibility to the Internet almost could solely determine whether or not a community is able to sustain itself and is able to sustain a large population of people uh, that can remain there without living in a city. So I think that, you know, it's not necessarily a negative thing, but it is a requirement now for folks in rural areas to remain connected. And in terms of urban areas, the connection and the options available out there for being so far ahead of everyone else are, are unbelievable. It's such an exciting time to live where you're you're behind if you haven't checked Twitter in an hour. The two communication speeds are, are fascinating to think about because you're quite literally talking about everything slowed down by multitudes whenever you get into a rural area. And there's so many health effects that have to do with that. So you could call it negative, but maybe rural areas are behind. So maybe whenever I get uh, west of Saline County, I do. I fell off the grid a little bit, but my blood pressure also evened <laughs> out perhaps. So uh, I think rural areas could call that a pro and a con in terms of going off the grid and, and not being as accessible because if you can't check Twitter all the time, you take the time to um, go outside and sit on the porch. Well, you mentioned options earlier. For young people, is technology an option that they w- rule out to move to rural areas because they know that they're not going to have the speed 
not going to have the access? Well, right now, I think we're also seeing a rebirth of young people who may or may not need a college degree to sustain their families. So I think that it depends on who the primary breadwinner is in the family. So if you've got someone that's going to be working on a farm, working in a factory, uh, working in an arena where technology is not as important, then it's certainly not a game changer. I think that for most young people that might move from an urban area to a rural area, technology would absolutely be a deciding factor for that move. But I think that folks moving from rural areas to urban or staying in a rural area might have a a stronger option either way. Dr. Richard, what are your thoughts on that? You cover a number of decades here as far as the difference between the technology for keeping people in an urban area or a rural area. There has been this kind of movement, and it generally tend to be generationally based, in which traditionally younger individuals would be moving out of the small town areas because there really weren't uh, jobs available. And it even uh, and, and for many communities that wanted to try to keep their young individuals there, one of the, the mechanisms they often used was trying to attract businesses, some company, you know, whether it's a fan company or it could have been Maytag or whatever, to try to come in. For some of those communities, they were very successful. For others, it just hasn't worked. And in fact, if, what we've seen is a lot of these uh, smaller companies that did move into rural areas have actually uh, moved out, and it generally tends to be a huge economic crunch on those little small town areas. Although I was going to say there, it's a, there's an interesting countercurrent now in the newest generation, and that is that individuals really are trying to evaluate what kind of lifestyle they want. In many cases, there's a real focus on organic uh, foods. Who knows, here in the state of Arkansas, there may be a focus on organically grown marijuana as well. And that so that there is this kind of movement where individuals are trying to get away from the, the social media and Twittering and everything and really focus on kind of getting back to nature. It's not a huge movement, but the fact that it does exist, and in fact, I know some individuals who are actually trying to to uh, have either purchased land and are actually beginning to, you know, have goats and cows and and, uh, and raise eggs and sell them and really kind of create a business, you know, out of it. It does suggest that there's some potential for rural areas to be rejuvenated. And I do think that, uh, as uh, Michael had mentioned, and I was talking about as well, is that it is kind of interesting that Latinos, in many cases, where they have moved to either Warren or Hope or the Queen or Dardanelle and Danville, there has been kind of a, a, a rural kind of growth and development and, uh, in those particular areas. And in fact, much of the land has been purchased in that area. And the focus has been on actually growing uh, products that they actually didn't uh, bring into the city or sell in that particular uh, county within the state of Arkansas. Well, uh, Dr. Yoder, going back to your article, I'm sure as you were talking about the the cities involved there, that the technology must have been some of the factor that you were talking about or thinking about. Absolutely. And uh, one interesting thing is is, um, in the 1980s, I believe that's when it reached a peak, manufacturing in the United States had moved to the rural south. And and so if you were just looking at a pie chart of, of the local, say, employment base or whatever, manufacturing was the strongest in the rural south. And I think that, that what, what Terry was talking about, about, about these um, companies kind of leaving some of these places is because of, of the, you know, the, the lack of good broadband and, and so on. Because it, 
anymore, these companies have to be really, really sophisticated in terms of, of their logistics. I want to take us into a little different direction here. Uh, you've, you've been talking about the Hispanics. Way. How do the, do the minorities and ethnically divergent groups function and then assimilate into the urban or the rural? Adrian, let me give that one to you first. I think in a lot of the rural areas in Arkansas, uh, there is still a lot of separation between different ethnicities. Unfortunately, uh, growing up in small towns, there are many Arkansans, even young Arkansans, that can say, I grew up in a class that had no no minorities. I grew up in a class where everyone was the same color, everyone was the same background. And those that go on to college settings or those that go on to formal training settings can expand out of that. But uh, we do still have many areas that are coming into adulthood with, with little uh, exposure to folks from from any kind of different background. Uh, and I think that as we have folks move back into urban areas, I think that 30 years down the road, whenever that pattern changes again, that minorities will have a um, more of a chance to move into rural areas. And it will shift again, is mm-hmm. my point. But right now, uh, I think that there are better chances for partnerships, for growth, uh, for minorities in urban areas. And, and in rural areas, I think there are still a lot of um, challenges. So that it's tougher for them to function in rural areas? I'd agree with that. Dr. Bouchard, let me give that one back to you. Going back again over time, uh, as far as the uh, assimilation and the divergence of uh, minorities in rural versus urban. Well, certainly in the South, everything was generally defined in terms of black and white. And in many cases, there were distinct boundaries. Usually in in small uh, rural towns, it was a uh, railroad (laughs) crossing across the the city. And usually on one side would be where African-Americans would be, and on the other side there would be uh, whites. And in in many cases, you can go to places like McGee and other places, and they still have this sense of, you know, where individuals live. And although it's gotten better in terms of that type of uh, racial segregation, and of course, the uh, and looking at all uh, groups, like, say like Asian American. Asian Americans are a, an ethnic group that is distinctly uh, urban group. It's very few of them actually go into rural areas. We have had a traditional small number of like Chinese that uh, used to go into small uh, rural areas throughout the South. In fact, there's a neat book on the the Chinese uh, the Mississippi Chinese. And initially, up until around the early 1960s, you know, they would open up grocery stores in, in uh, you know, small rural southern uh, cities. Uh, and for that matter, so would uh, Jewish merchants would often open up for, for Latinos. They are also a group that has been disproportionately kind of moved into urban areas. That's what makes Arkansas such a unique state in that uh, almost 50% of the Latinos that have actually come into the state of Arkansas have moved into these small rural areas. And I would suggest that is also associated with a little uh, quicker degree of assimilation and some degree of upward mobility and a relatively uh, rapid kind of a generational movement upward as a byproduct of actually living in these areas where they bought land, opened up stores, and have generally tended to have a certain degree of uh, economic success in the communities that they've moved to. Mm -hmm. I would say this is one of the things that really differentiates small cities, which are defined as rural and large cities, is that kind of traditional segregation still exists in the smaller cities like Stuttgart, for example. 
But if you look at a place like, say, Houston or Dallas, what's happening there is not only the urbanization of, of Asians, but the suburbanization of Asians and Hispanics and so on. So what's happened is the inner city areas of Houston and Dallas are starting to, to experience gentrification where whites or you know other just affluent people are moving into these neighborhoods and, and uh, investing in them and, and turning old houses, old housing stock into kind of good quality old housing stock that's historically relevant. And it drives up the property values. And this is something I've seen during you know my generation's lifetime is this process then where people are driven out from these inner city areas. And where do they go? They, go, they start going to suburbs, like f- what they call first ring or inner ring suburbs. So I'm thinking in Houston, an example would be like Sharpstown or Bel Air. Those places have Middle Eastern communities. They have you know um, East Asian communities, Latino communities, and so on. I want to ask another question directed first to you, uh, Adrian. Family. As young people are starting their families, how, how important is the, f- the family dynamic to rural or urban? Well, first of all, one of the biggest trends right, right now that we're seeing, especially in millennials, is folks are starting families later. They're getting married later. They're choosing to have children later. So I think that's changing the dynamic up quite a bit in terms of, you know, where you choose to live. And, you know, that can allow you to live in a rural area possibly easier than it might have uh, earlier because it allows you to save and invest. But in terms of you're talking about staying close to family, to other family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think you'd find in a lot of rural communities the value is still shared in living down the road from a grandmother uh, or from a, a family member that's going to help you raise your children. It is still something that's very much passed down, uh, and it's very, it's it's still highly valuable in a, a warm and fuzzy way. But unfortunately, uh, because of jobs, we're seeing a big transition. I think in in folks understanding that they will move away. They will raise their children far away from grandparents. I feel like a lot of folks in my generation feel guilt about it. We don't necessarily like it, but we don't feel like it's in our control. I think if you could talk to your, you know, your mother-in-law or your mother uh, who says, I haven't seen my grandchild in six months, part of you would say, well, you know, number one, do you, you don't want to raise this child. It's your grandchild for a reason. <laughs> yeah. I'm supporting this child by working in an area that's three or four hours away. So it's an apology, but it's also a, I'm doing the best that I can. And unfortunately, I can't provide for my family in, uh, you know, rural Arkansas. I had to move to this area. So uh, there is some guilt, but I think there's also a movement in uh, the older generation. Uh, take an area in Montgomery County, uh, Mountain Harbor, uh, which is where I live, actually. So Mountain Harbor has many people that have family members far away, and I think many of them would admit we love our grandchildren. We absolutely you know, love our families, but we wanted to retire in an area that was away because this is our time. Uh, we don't want to raise our grandchildren. We want to be there for to be grandparents. So I think there's a movement on both sides uh, that that's unique from what it was 50 years ago. Uh, closeness is is redefined, I think, and sometimes proximity doesn't always affect that. Mm-hmm. Doctor Yoder, during my generation, one thing that that started to happen is, from what I'm led to believe in the you know data that I've seen and so on, is that my generation was more apt to move around. And now what I'm hearing is that people don't move around quite as much, and it has to do with cost of living. I think it's, that's probably a post-recession kind of a thing. And this came up during the election when they were talking about you know, the election results coming out of 
uh, the you know the Rust Belt areas and, and places where manufacturing jobs have you know have have either vanished because of technology or, or offshoring or what have you. They were saying, well, people raised the question, well, why don't they just move to where the jobs are? And they just, for whatever reason, they don't. And I think it's because of economics. They want to kind of stay where they are, even if it means that they don't have the same income that they had before they were laid off, that their mm-hmm. new job is, is paying even less. Uh, Dr. Richard, your thoughts on the family o- over time? Well, I think it's a great question because to begin with, there's no doubt that the structure of the family has changed dramatically since the 1930s up to uh, today, so it's been an increasingly smaller family. We're at ZPG, zero population growth. The only reason our population has still a relatively young base is primarily because of immigration into the United States. With this really decrease in the number of, of individuals in the families, whereas we used to have four, five, you know, six kids, you know, now it's it's uh, the choices are for couples or individuals to decide not to get married they can have a child or they might have two but usually that's about it it's we just don't see other than some upper income groups and some individuals at the very very lowest income levels where they really have a large number of children to begin with so there and a lot of that is based off economic choices to uh, to begin with so but with this change in the in the family structure this is associated also with a changing role of women so that women, you know, back in the 1950s and 1960s when I was growing up, you know, women just did not were not in the labor force at the same rate that men were. It was really a man's world, and and uh, there were certain jobs that really women were channeled into that really did not have the same opportunities as men. And what we have seen is a dynamic shift and change in our society, where uh, a woman can be anything she wants. In fact, I, you know, uh, we had a woman who got the majority of votes in the, for the president of the United States. Although she didn't get the presidency, but but the, the point is that that the those glass ceilings are beginning to be shattered, and because the family sizes are so much smaller, it does mean that women have an opportunity to go anywhere. They're they're not just uh, going to stay home, and they're looking at job opportunities just as uh, men are. So that the sense of the family, in some ways, uh, means that it, it has been a push factor of individuals being pushed out of often rural areas into urban areas, that there are more choices, that individuals have more choices as to where, and that idea that maybe where individuals live may have changed a little bit. It is true that in times of economic depressions, uh, younger individuals are more likely to stay at home and stay with their family because they can't afford the cost for uh, an apartment or, you know, keeping up with expenses on their car. And that is an uh, interesting dynamic because often when you interview individuals, you'll say, you know, are you, you know, where do you live in? And, and you know, these young adults are saying, well, I'm living with my parents, and they they hate it. They hate saying that they're living with their parents <laughs> and they're still dependent on them. But the irony of that is, if you ask the parents, the parents are, yeah, they got to get out on their own. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're doing kind of the same thing, but they're their parents, so they want to help them out as much as they can, and you know, kind of, but they're willing to push them out the door as well. So there is a, a, an interesting dynamic in terms of the changing nature of the family. Well, obviously, we still love each other. The fact that there is a, often a much greater distance between grandparents and their children and their grandchildren because they, they generally tend to move where the markets are. And, and Michael is absolutely right about the uh, kind of like the Rust Belt or the production sector of the economy, that that is increasingly shrinking. It's been an interesting kind of a political debate where they're saying they're going to bring back manufacturing jobs. And I think there's not going to be some dramatic increase in in 
production jobs. It's all automated and it's all robotic. And, you know, so they may, may create a brand new plant and there'll be some very sophisticated workers, but it's not going to be all of a sudden like it was back in the 50s or the 1940s where you have, you know, a thousand individuals working in steel plants, you know, producing steel. It is a much more of a high tech type of job. And that means, of course, individuals moving into uh, information technology or you know, hopefully we'll see more jobs probably emerging in, in what we call the green technology. I'm Phil Marriage, and you're listening to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here on KUAR. We'll be right back after this last break to talk more about the comparisons between rural and urban life here in 2016. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and I'm Phil Marriage, along with my guest, UALR professor Dr. Terry Richard, UCA professor and author of The Sprawling Small Cities of Arkansas, The Case for Sustainable Urban Planning, and the director of communications for the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, Adrian Barnes. Well, we sort of, in the last segment there, touched a little bit about the political aspects of urban versus rural. I do want to ask a question about going back over time. It seems to me like in my 67 years that rural used to be or have a lot of uh, liberal thoughts with it as well as conservative, but it seems like it has moved much more conservative. So is there a designation over time of what's happened conservatively and liberally between urban and rural? Probably the biggest shift, it depends on how you identify political parties, because normally you know, Democrats have been identified as liberal and Republicans were identified as conservative. And, of course, in the South, it being a basically controlled by the Democratic Party. And, of course, that changed with Nixon's Southern strategy, where the effort, in fact, LBJ mentioned it when he did the omnibus bill and the civil rights legislation, that he was going to lose the health of generations. And basically, that's kind of what has happened. That has often been kind of a, a race-based thing of really taking advantage of this division that we've already suggested that even occurs in the geographic separation of communities within the South. The other thing about probably the smaller communities is, as we've mentioned, that there's been kind of a trend of movement of younger individuals out. Older adults tend to vote more conservatively, and they vote at higher rate, and they just tend to be more conservative than uh, individuals who are middle-aged or younger. In fact, millennials are probably the most liberal of the, the generations that we're going to talk about, and they're much more likely to live in urban areas. So yeah, I would say that that's kind of the primary uh, difference, as well as some cases it's the degree of ethnic diversity. So certainly some states like Iowa, you know, when they were talking about who was going to win Iowa, Democrats would say the demographics are against us. Iowa is almost all white. And that they would just say, you know, that's, you know, we're, we, we have an uphill battle here to do this. The more diverse the state is, uh, the more likely that it was going to be a competitive battleground. Dr. Yoder? That's exactly right. Terry's exactly right. But there are some interesting trends also. If you think back in the past when, when socialism was actually a force to be reckoned with in the United States, it was in, the, it was in rural areas where they had their strongest affiliations, like, for example, in northern Louisiana. There was a strong socialist presence. Eugene Victor Debs, who ran with, uh, twice for the Socialist Party, it's my understanding that he did the best in rural Oklahoma. And then if you look in, in the state of North Dakota, there still is a public-owned bank. You know, it's, it's like a, the state owns the bank in North Dakota. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's remnants of old socialism from back in the past. 
But that said, it's it's um, it's exactly right that these days the rural areas are just far more conservative. Do you find that for your age group that that's more or less the way it is too? Yes, I would say for my age group, uh-huh. it's, it has maintained itself. Adrian, uh, your thoughts on that from a younger perspective? I can't offer a lot of anything unique from what's been said in rural areas, no matter what age. I think the movement in the last 10 years has been to a more conservative viewpoint, whereas in urban areas you're going to find folks more liberal. Millennials by far are going to be more liberal, but most millennials are also going to be in urban areas. You know, why is that? You also have to skew education in there. You have to talk about economic status of, of a lot of this movement. But we have seen a bit of a shift, especially in Arkansas, which used to be a very much democratic mm-hmm. state. Because we're heavily rural and it, it showed up in this most recent election, we have leaned more toward Republican conservative values. It's funny, too, because they say that most of our population now, we're going back to urban areas. So now we're, I believe, 56 percent more folks are living in urban areas than there are rural. So it's not by a whole lot. But it's a lot more than Arkansas used to be. So that would point to a more democratic, liberal area, right? But we obviously contradicted that in the most recent election. Well, well so. if you don't want me breaking in there, but, you know, the other real key variable of that is, is uh, you know, they don't call the Bible Belt in the South Bible Belt for nothing. Right. Religion plays an extraordinarily strong effect on how individuals vote. And what we have seen is that over the last few generations that particularly evangelical groups and Pentecostal groups have been very heavily involved in the political process. It's been a deliberate involvement and really uh, trying to push uh, parishioners or using wedge issues even, say, within the Catholic Church, because I noticed that in the Catholic Church a number of individuals came in uh, while Mass was going and suggested that individuals vote for particular individuals because they were more likely to appoint a Supreme Court justice that was going to be pro-life. So this religious issue, and often using religion as a wedge issue, has also, particularly in the South, has created a real strong kind of coalition of various groups, and mostly in terms of kind of fundamentalist groups that serve as a core for persons to vote conservatively. Dr. Yoder? And just one brief thing to add to that. Um, That's exactly right. The religious groups have been very successful about mobilizing politically, and really the area where they've been even the strongest at making a change are the suburbs. Well, let me ask you guys, all three of you, this pretty simple question, I think anyway. The us versus them factor, is there much of that still or was there? Terry, let me give that first to you. Was there, uh, from that older perspective anyway, was there an us versus them attitude for rural versus urban? Uh, yeah, I think it was pretty identifiable. You know, we, like I said, it, in many cases, uh, there used to be jokes, and I, I can't think of too many jokes right now where they're rural versus urban, but invariably, it used to be when I was growing up, there were jokes about the country hit, you know, and and in, and in the rural areas, they had their own kind of stereotype of clueless urbanites you know, who might come to visit them, and they would often play jokes on them just to kind of make sure they realized how stupid they were. So, you know, kind of like <laughs> a snipe hunting or – yeah. I mean, there were, there were really some kind of variations and stereotypes about how individuals done. And again, that has – in many cases, like I said, and, and we had mentioned the access to social media, and you know, when you go to rural areas now, in many cases you have satellite discs, and these guys are connected to the same programs that uh, we're connected to. They have uh, 
uh, access to Netflix, they watch movies. I mean, there's in terms of, of really access to the communication that we have in urban areas, there's not a whole lot of difference in, in uh, rural areas with some exceptions of, of areas that are so isolated that they really don't get cellular phone or they don't have access to uh, you know satellite uh, dish reception. But that's, that's pretty rare. If we were in a third world country, there really is a difference between these rural areas and, and and they still have jokes about it. in fact i know in colombia you know they they use the term indio let your indian and it's a cultural issue it means a cultural issue in terms of educational attainment uh, how they speak there really are going to be rural farmers and and stuff and, and it mm-hmm. is a very very different society that we live in as an industrialized nation dr yoder uh, us versus them yes I, w- I would agree with that throughout my generation that lingered quite a bit if you look at cinema and stereotypes i think that really encapsulates it very well you had you know like shows like the beverly hillbillies yeah. and, and some yeah. of the offshoots from there i sort of deconstruct a lot of times uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, and I find that the way the the writers did that is they made the Beverly Hillbillies to be the ones that looked smart, and you know the Urbanites were kind of dumb, Mister Drysdale and yeah. all of that. Yeah. So, so I think it's good to to look at you know the role of c- cinema and television shows and that kind of thing in in movies and how these differences are are portrayed. And in my generation, the big thing that kind of stuck out also was the depiction of suburbia. You know, if you think about the Stepford Wives and right. even that movie American Beauty, it's, it's, it was, you know, very much uh, bringing light to, it, to what the suburban way of life is. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it was accurate, there was, you know, at least an attempt to do that yeah. on the part of Hollywood. Well, Adrian, did you ever see the Beverly Hillbillies? Or is that way after your time? <laughs> no, no. Ellie Mae was, was very much familiar. Oh, okay, okay. I, I know who all yeah. of them are. <laughs> what about the us versus sure. them there's not necessarily an us versus them in terms of we're being left behind and you don't care about us in the city. But I think in terms of how media portrays or how media more or less trains us to think and communicate, there, there is an us in them because there's such different images. But when you really start looking at things like folks that work from home, in urban and rural areas, there are people that two to three days a week uh, they request that. 20-something-year-olds will go into an interview and say, I'm interested in this only if I can do this and this from home. So I think as we see trends like that arise, we will see the us and them move away when it comes to a, a rural and urban attitude. That is still going to exist culturally for other reasons. I think, though, you'd, you'd find that economic status and possibly education are more of an us and them as opposed to rural and urban. One of the things I think still is in, although it, it's true in urban areas in the same degree uh, also, but in, in rural areas now, there is kind of a coalescing of loyalty to the football team, you know, and to mm-hmm. the sport. Mm-hmm. And, and individuals in those small areas, they, they do have an opportunity to really play more. They're, they're actually more engaged in these physical activities than often individuals are in, in rural areas. But then you get to the point of kind of like with uh, Adrian is that he comes from a small community, but I know a bunch of people from Lovelady, Texas, where I've got relatives and stuff. They want to go to TCU or they're going to SMU or they go to the University of Houston. They're, they're all college grads. You know, that the difference where in terms of what they used to grow up in has changed significantly as they have moved on to higher levels of education, jobs opening, degrees of entrepreneurship, and, and really relocation. You know, and it's just that to me, it's kind of a level of freedom that's emerged in industrialized countries and it's really changed the way we really see individuals who are rural or 
or uh, Irvin or us versus them. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about this topic was, uh, and I got it from your article, Dr. Yoder, was uh, what planners do. And I'm thinking back over my lifetime and, and read your article about sprawl, that, that some of that was probably planned. And so uh, at least I think some of, of it might have been planned. So I'm wondering if, if the urban planners or planners at all are taking into consideration now uh, the, the blending of urban and rural in the planning. And is the planning going to be any better than, uh, say, 50 years from now when we look back at and have another program like this and they're talking about what the planners did, you know, in, in 2016? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure that these smaller cities are very planned because one of the things is you have to look at urban budgets and they don't really have the money to hire a planner. So what happens is you'll get these consultants who will come in and come up with a quote-unquote master plan, but they're working for like 30 little cities. And they just they basically follow what's called Euclidean land use planning, where it's just very segregated land uses. This area will be residential. This area will be industrial. This area will be retail. And they're not following form-based planning like we're starting to see in cities. So that's I think that's one of the reasons why the smaller cities like Stuttgart, Moralton, Batesville, Etc. These places have a lower density, and they actually the sprawling problem is even worse than in large cities in terms of serving people per square mile, the number of people served. But unfortunately, the, these small cities um, in, and in you know just rural areas in general, planning is just kind of unfortunately an afterthought. Well, Adrian Barnes, when you're my age, which is a long time from now, what do you think you're going to be seeing in terms of urban versus rural? One of my biggest questions is. What is social media going to have done to this younger generation? This group of people that would rather watch someone travel to Europe on Instagram than, than maybe be in Europe themselves. It scares me very much to walk around and try and enjoy jogging at a, an outdoor park and uh, trying to look at the, the fall leaves, which is the season we're in now, and look around and nobody else is looking. Everyone else is experiencing fall through pictures that someone else took of fall leaves. I, I don't know what that means, but it means something. It means a change in the way that we perceive information and the way that we're going to communicate, the way that we're going to create a, a culture as we move forward. Uh, agriculturally speaking, what is going to happen as more folks move into urban areas and we have less and less people that saw a tree planted and grow from a seedling or saw a calf born or saw milk uh, actually come from a, a cow or a goat, uh, an egg from a chicken, etc. What are we going to do as we have a generation that's more removed from hands-on farming and hands-on mm -hmm. agriculture? Uh, and it's threaded into everything that we do in terms of how we eat, how we make choices in buying food and cooking food and eating out. All of those type of patterns are going to be changed with an urban movement and with our heavy ties to technology. Dr. Richard? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I, I do think that you know there's a certain degree of a movement where in uh, common spaces in many urban areas that planners are thinking about, you know, ways of uh, creating parks or creating areas where individuals can actually grow organic food. You know, we have some here. I don't know the degree of success that uh, they have to begin with. <laughs> Anyone that's ever done any farming knows it's really hard work <laughs> for most individuals. They just don't want to do that as, as hard of work to, uh, you know, even grow crops and stuff. So, uh, you know, I think there's a possibility that maybe our educational system can try to 
reorient individuals to let them know how important it is. And certainly, you know, I'm kind of a, a, a very fond of the idea of organic products and that, uh, you know, being able to see things grow from seeding to ultimately harvesting, you know, might be something that could change the dynamic so that even in urban areas, there's this link to what is actually happening in rural areas. But then again, in the rural areas, you know, as Adrian said, you, you get a shrinking kind of labor force. And in many cases, that's a, that is driven by the fact that, that most farms are agribusiness. They're mm-hmm. huge uh, industrial enterprises, and they really rely a lot on a mechanized machinery to, to produce this. And so it's just a, I think that's kind of the wave of the future. I don't know if there's any escape from it. Dr. Yoder, let, let me give all three of you guys a, and start with you. Uh, any final thoughts you have on our topic today? When looking at, at the future of rural versus urban is demographics. Because as the population ages, uh, increasingly the elderly who are less mobile, let's be honest, are going to be making up a, a larger and larger percentage, percentage of the population. And it's going to be much easier for them to get around in cities. I think the future really is cities and public transit. Dr. Richard, your final thoughts? Uh, again, I think uh, your show is really pertinent to the fact that if really one wants to look at generational change, that when one looks at how life was back in the 30s and 40s, where really there was an identifiable rural area, mm-hmm. and now as we are in the 21st century, that often the boundaries and definitions between urban and rural really have been obliterated by our technology, our communications mm-hmm. revolution, our transportation revolution, and that we really are you know, on the cusp of looking at new ways of organizing our lives, and in many cases that those definitions of rural and urban really won't make as much um, of a difference as they used to in the past. Adrian Barnes, your last final thoughts. I'd like to end with the best is in the middle. I would hope that as we move forward that uh, ideas and values from both the, the rural and the urban areas can come together somehow, and that's usually what happens when there is change. Sometimes it's not always the best of both worlds, but uh, one of your questions was about greener pastures, and and I don't think there are greener pastures. There are just other pastures. And so rather, you know, right now where the other pasture is urban areas, that's where the movement is. In 50 years, it may the pasture may be back in rural areas. And as we make these shifts, we all need to remember that, you know, all of this goes in phases, and the best really is the, the most mindful way to do all of this is to take what's most valuable from rural and urban populations and try to blend those for what makes the healthiest sense, the best sense for for ourselves, for our environment, for our children, uh, and for our culture in general. We've been comparing the generational perspectives here today on urban and rural life here in 2016. I hope you've enjoyed our program this evening, and I do want to thank my guests, Dr. Terry Richard, he joined us from Delray Beach, Florida by phone. Dr. Richard, glad you were with us here today. Yeah, thanks again, Phil. And then also speaking from the middle perspective has been Dr. Michael Yoder. He's associate professor of, of in the Department of Geography at UCA, director of Master of Science in Community Development at UCA, and the author of that article, The Sprawling Small Cities of Arkansas, The Case for Sustainable Urban Planning. Uh, Dr. Yoder, glad you could be here, too. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. And our younger generation guest has been Adrian Barnes. Adrian is the Director of Communications for the Arkansas Department of Agriculture. Thank you for being here, Adrian. Thank you for the invitation. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. You can find us online at YTT at KUAR.org.
O-R-G. If you have any thoughts, you can drop me a, a line right there, even if you have some ideas for future programs. Join us the first Friday at 7 next month when our topic will be cardiovascular health. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.